Welcome to Calling Operator. The podcast where we speak to operators in some of Australia's biggest startups. Find out how they got there and what their impact is. Connecting to Rena Bakshi, PR and comms lead at Nutramix. So, Roy, I wanted to say welcome to the Calling Operator podcast. It is so good to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really excited to be here. So I'm actually going to start with a bit more of a personal question and just ask, where did you grow up? What was kind of early life for Roy like? And then we can kind of go on that journey through to where we are now. Well, I grew up in India, but my dad was in the army. So I grew up all over the country. We would literally move every three years and I've gone to like 13 different schools growing up. So yeah, it was it was a crazy Right. My dad was a doctor in the army, so I got to see his life, obviously experienced it very firsthand, what it's like to be a doctor. But also we were often posted in a lot of active military zones. For example, one of the places my dad was supposed to do was Kashmir. So got to experience sort of like that emergency critical care firsthand as well where, you know, they'd be flying choppers in in the middle of the night and my dad would be rushing off to perform emergency surgery and stuff. And as a kid, he would take me and my sister along a lot when he had to do his evening rounds and stuff. But we wouldn't actually go into the wards, but we'd be there. We grew up on the army base. So that was kind of my childhood. It was really weird because my dad retired when I when just when I went into uni from the army and we moved out of the army base into just like, you know, civilian life, as he called it. And I was so terrified because I was like, where are all the people with guns? Where is the closed gates? Where are the army trucks? Not hearing helicopters or ambulances and all. I was freaked out for the first couple of months because I'm like, how does everybody live like this? So did you find some comfort in having that presence And because it was just all you knew and all you grew up with? Pretty much. And I, I don't know how to describe it, but we literally used to go to school in an armored vehicle with a person with a gun because... We would be in these zones where if you were an army officer's kid and all, it would just it wouldn't be safe to go to school any other way. So you just get really used to that and you're like, Yep, this is normal. I'm getting in on this Jeep and here's the guy with the AK forty seven or whatever gun they had. And it, you never like you never see any violence, but you're just used to having that all the time. And then when you go into a normal bus, you're like, What if something happens? Yeah. yeah. So it wasn't traumatic in any way. I guess that was just all you knew at the time. Yeah, the way I can best describe it is it's kind of like living on the Top Gun set, but you never see any fighting or anything, but you're just constantly surrounded by people in uniform, people all of the military background and stuff as such. Yeah, right. And did you have many conversations early on with your parents about what war was or what he was doing or what his work involved? Yeah, I, I think so. Actually, everyone in my family has been in the army. So my grandfathers were also in the army and my great grandfathers were also served in World War Two. So I, that was it was really common for them to talk about their experiences. Mm-hmm. But I think my dad was off. He was especially open and honest about his experiences. He never sugarcoated it. And he would often tell us about his early life and you get posted to these war zones and what it was, you know, you're on a glacier and people are shooting and throwing bombs at you and you're sitting there and you don't know when you're going to come back home or if you're going to come back home and see your family again. And he was, I'm really grateful. He was very open about that. So it kind of gave me perspective into what his life is like without all of that. I think externally, it's really, what I've noticed people often judge people in the army and they think there's all these reasons that they join and they must like to shoot people and blah, blah, blah. But it's really not like that. 
for my dad, at least like he joined because that was his best way to go to medical school. Mm. That was his only option. Um, and then a lot of it with my grandfather's stuff, he, he was, I think a young person when India just got independence from the British. So for him at that time, it was a great honor to go into the army because you're serving your nation. You're showing this loyalty to a new young free India. So it's, it's great to get that insight and into their perspectives for joining it. No, that's super interesting. So then school life. So you were bouncing around a lot and was that difficult? What was the, what was school life? So I didn't go to government funded schools. Usually in India, you usually will go to a private school of some sort. And we'd move mid-semester, so there's a whole process to get in. You have to do all these entrance exams and stuff. And life in India is it's really academically oriented. Even if you have other interests, you might be great at sports, great at music, but really your status quo is your grades. So mm. if you don't have good grades and the standard of good is very, it's like, it's very high. I was really lucky. My parents never imposed that on me. They were they were very happy for me to do whatever, but you definitely feel that pressure growing up in the school system. If you don't have a 95% out of a hundred, you're kind of like, uh, am I even doing well? And then moving schools, I think it's different for different army kids because my sister and I were quite introverted. At the beginning, when we were younger, fifth, sixth grade, it was easier because you move, you make friends, everyone's a kid. But eventually you get to this point where you move and everyone else has been at this place for 10, 15 years and they went to mm. kindergarten with their other friends and the new kid and you don't know anyone and it, it does get harder to make friends. But my sister was sort of my best friend, so we didn't really care. We're quite close in age, we're a year and eight months apart. So we'd hang out with each other in the breaks and we just do our own thing. And yeah, that, that was kind of our life. India is also a really diverse country. So every mm. single state you move to, that's, there's a different language. They have a different script, their culture, is completely different even if you live in north india everyone talks in hindi when you go to south india everyone might talk to you in, only in english all the time and mm. it's kind of like getting used to all of those things but i definitely think moving around that much made me really good at adapting to different cultures and not feeling so scared about it not feeling so scared about starting over every time yeah no i'm gonna say your adaptability must break through the roof <laughs> <laughs> And it's so, so university, where was that? So I did my undergraduate in India as well. So I did it in Bangalore at St. Joseph's College of Commerce. It was kind of, when I moved here, I was like, oh my God, getting into uni here is so easy. Because in India, you have the 12th grades, which are the equivalent of, what was it called over here? Purchase Yeah, that's right. So you have what we call, they call the board exam. So you have those, but you also have to give individual tests for every single university that you want to go into. And there's multiple rounds. So there's a written test, then there's a group interview, then there's an individual interview, and then your parents are interviewed, and then you get in. So there's all of these layers to getting in, and it can be super competitive because just because India has a large population, there's yeah, like, I was gonna say, and unis they have 200 seats, but you have 400 or 500 thousand people going for those seats. So so it can be quite difficult to get in. At the same time, I was also applying for unis abroad because I just kind of wanted to see maybe if that was a good choice for me. So I gave my um, SATs and applied to some universities in Singapore, sorry, Singapore at the time. But I decided because I knew I would want to study more, I decided to do my undergrad in India and then do my postgrad, which was my master's um, abroad. And that's what I did here at Uni Melbourne. Yeah, cool. So when did you say you finished your undergrad and then did you move to Melbourne? Did you apply for Uni 
first and then move it up? So I, I finished my undergrad in 2017. And because I graduated high school early, I finished uni at 20. And I'd already interned at the time at Goldman Sachs. So after graduating, I I think it was like a week later, I was working at Goldman Sachs. So I worked there for two years. And then I, a couple of months into starting at Goldman, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. It was actually, I was in New York for work and my first day of diabetic ketoacidosis. And so kind of just started my full-time job and managing this chronic illness altogether. And two years in, I was, it was a couple of factors, but one of them was definitely my health. And I was, I want to shift industries. I want to move to a country where there's less stigma against type 1 diabetes and I can connect with more people who are just sort of living their life and applied to a lot of universities actually. And I got into NYU and I got in here, but I just, from what I'd seen and from what I had in type 1 diabetic communities, I'd spoken to a few Australians about what their life is like here and from what the University of Melbourne was the only application that asked me if I had a disability or if I wanted like the application process to be different because of my condition. And that was really important to me, the fact that they even catered for that. So I felt like this would be a good place for me to move to. And yeah, moved here in 2019. Yeah, wild. So that is insane that you found that out on your first while you I thought I thought I had food poisoning and I was so worried because I was like, oh my, because it was 1am and I woke up, I thought I, ha- I was having a panic attack. So I called my dad up and I'm not feeling well. Um, and I fell out of my bed. I couldn't see anymore. And my dad was like, oh, I just called 911. But I obviously yeah. couldn't see. And I had this roommate and I just was yelling. I was like, Charlotte, can you please call 911? I think something's yeah. wrong. And she called the hotel manager who put me back in bed and they called 911. And I, I passed out because I was basically going into a coma. And I just remember flashes, like the 911 responder sort of asking me on a scale of 1 to 12. 10 how I felt because I was in a lot of pain and I was like my pain's a 12 and he was ma'am can you please stop overreacting and then my next memory is waking up in an emergency room and there was someone next to me who was handcuffed to the bed because they had been shot in the leg and they were yelling in pain and then the next is waking up in the ICU I was oh my god my dad's gonna kill me this is <laughs> I, I don't know if I have insurance and I'm here with food poisoning so it was crazy but my dad He knew where my hotel was, so he knew which hospital I would be at. And he had called in advance and it found out everything that was happening with me. So he actually knew about my diagnosis before I did, which was kind of good because when they told me, I was just so confused. And I called my dad up and he put me in on everything. So that was good. Yeah. And I'm sure you had insurance because you were there for a work trip. So I'm sure everything was okay. Yeah. Well, Goldman Sachs does take really good care of their people because literally yeah. all I told the hospital people I was a Goldman Sachs employee and my mom one of her friends worked um, at the human capital um, division for the company so she called him up he was the heads of benefits in com and she called him up and he was in a meeting and she's like no you have to something's happened to Royal you have to do it and they have this emergency system so literally within 30 minutes the hospital knew who I was They had my insurance details. The company sent over a 24-hour nurse because they knew I was alone. They had someone go pack up my belongings and bring them to the hospital. And they asked me everything. They were, do you want to be alone in the room? Do you want to go back home? Every single thing. They filled my parents in. And everything was done before I even had a chance to like (laughs) figure out what was happening. Yeah. Well, I mean, that is incredibly lucky. And what a wild experience. So was that also the moment that you were, I don't know, Goldman Sachs is... Hey. No, I was super grateful. I was, yeah. 
I, at least my experience in New York, they were so amazing. They made sure they had this whole system of internal doctors. So they made sure I was going to a therapist after I was discharged. They made sure I had 24 hour nurses to be taken care of. They adjusted my work timings. And it was more just when I went back to India, I noticed a real difference because in India, having a chronic illness, um, is pretty much the end of your career. And I did have some colleagues who, because I, I told my team about my diagnosis, my manager knew, but I told my team because I was still getting used to it. And I, I knew there would be times when my blood sugar would be low and I would need help. So I just wanted them to know. And one of my colleagues at the time, who he left Goldman Sachs shortly after this because of cultural differences with the company. So he's not representative of the company at all. Or its culture, but he sort of took this on as, oh, this is my chance to get Roy fired. And he called up all my colleagues in the US and went, don't give Roy any work. She can't work anymore. She has a chronic illness and basically leaked all my health information to everyone, which the company did take really seriously. But he was trying to get me fired. And India doesn't really have very strong laws because it doesn't, with type 1 diabetes, are invisible chronic illnesses because those are not recognized as a disability. So technically, you could get fired for that. And also, India, it's it's still really difficult if you're a woman in the workplace to get taken seriously because I do, I did feel all my experience was from the minute I entered, there was this clock that started ticking, which was, yep, she's young, so you get as much work you can out of her because she's going to get married, pregnant and drop off. Yeah. And you feel that pressure. And because I had a chronic illness, besides the company, even my grand, my grandparents were sort of, oh, why would you want to work? You should just quit. And they were putting all this pressure on my parents to get me, get an arranged marriage for me and get me married off to someone because they were, yep, her life's over. But it's really because my parents don't prescribe to any of these yeah. values or opinions. They were like, nope, she's going to do whatever she wants with her life yeah. and she's going to make her own decisions. And I was giving my job 200% because I want to prove to people that just because I have an illness, that doesn't mean my career is over. And I was, at the time, I was the only type 1 diabetic on my floor who would wear wearables and stuff openly. And I would get asked so many random questions about them all the time and people were really intrusive. But after a while, I did have these other people who were type 1 diabetics reach out to me because they saw the wearable and then they, they knew what it was. And they were how did you get the confidence to tell your team you have this illness because I don't feel that way. And after conversations, they actually started opening up as well because really for me, I realized I didn't want... I, I didn't want to hide who I was. I wanted to mm -hmm. accept the illness as part of who I was. Yeah. And uh, about two years in, I was just like, okay, I've done all I think I can in the country at the moment. I had this YouTube channel about raising awareness about living with type 1 diabetes. And I had all these people reach out to me from smaller towns and cities about their experiences. And many of them had dropped out of school. There were kids whose parents would reach out to me and they hadn't even told their kid their diagnosis. So their kid just thought, oh, everybody's parents comes in at random times of the day and injects you with insulin. And that's, that's really the reality of living there with type 1 diabetes. But because of the internet, and as amazing as it is, I was able to connect with the community outside of India. And I was able to connect with all of these amazing people because I was only 20 at the time and my doctors were pretty much like, yep, you're, so you're going to be dead at 50. And there were doctors who were even just, you just need to pray the diabetes away. They were like, Go to all these special temples, stop taking insulin, just pray it away. And through the farm, I was able to connect with doctors in Dubai where my dad worked. And I just used to, I feel like this makes me sound like a crazy person, but I just no. used to fly to Dubai like twice a year to meet with doctors there because they would take my care much more seriously. They would never talk about 
going to temples and praying and stuff. But I just was, I can't live my whole life like this. I can't live my whole life trying to, you know, justify that I can still do work with this condition. But also two years in, I was, yep, Goldman Sachs is a great firm, but I don't know that operational risk is what I want to do with my career. <laughs> and my undergrad was in marketing anyway, so I really just wanted to commit to that field. I really wanted to commit to marketing PR comms. And I feel like the timing was just right. Everything just aligned. And I, yeah, I got I got into Unimob. Um, I was, okay, I, I actually hit two years at Goldman Sachs at about the same time as my course. I can move to Australia and start my course. The timing seems fine to me. And so... I think I just quit my job and a week later I was in Australia starting my degree. That's amazing. So then, so you studied a master's of comms and marketing, was it? It was management and marketing. Yeah. Management and marketing, sorry. And then when did you hear about Nutromics? Maybe first you want to just sort of talk about your role there and, and maybe what Nutromics do a little bit as well. Sure. So Nutromics is a wearable, the diagnostics company, and they're developing a wearable, which is the next evolution of the continuous glucose monitor, which is something I wear. So basically, uh, they use DNA-based sensors, which instead of one target, the CGM can only sense glucose. It can't sense anything else in your body. But this DNA-based sensor is flexible so it can actually sense multiple like drugs hormones proteins and metabolites which makes it really flexible so from a patient perspective it has applications beyond diabetes so if you it can go into fields cardiovascular disease um sepsis acute kidney injury and vancomycin is the first indication but for me the way i saw it was oh if I, and this is the reality for a lot of type 1 diabetics, you often get other complications. If I was a type 1 diabetic who had cancer, or if I was a type 1 diabetic who also had cardiovascular disease, I could just use one wearable to track everything and I could get the best care in the world. And I was already doing that with my CGM because my dad, even though he's an ENT specialist, he would track my sugars in from Dubai and even now he tracks my sugars in Dubai and he helps me manage my condition 24-7. But imagine if you could do that for something, for multiple diseases. And what if you could access the best healthcare systems, even if you weren't in that country? And that's what Neutromics is wearable. That's a long-term vision. That's what we aim to do for people. And I'm the PR and comms lead there. I started as an intern and sort of grew into this role. And even though I didn't have a STEM background or anything. So it was 2020 when I graduated and half of my degree was in person and half of my degree was online in lockdowns. Yeah. So I hadn't really had a chance to build connections that you would have otherwise if you yeah. go in person. And when I graduated, you know, anyone who graduates in 2020 would hear this. Nobody wanted to hire you. <laughs> I remember. It's, especially as an international student, because you have to explain to people all of this stuff about your visa. And some people will want to listen and others really won't. I started looking, because in India, there's really this narrative, you have to work at a corporate, you cannot do anything but a stable job. But I started to look beyond that. I was like, no, maybe I should go beyond this. And I started talking to start other startups and... I don't know. Some of my experiences were really different, weird splits. Some of them, some of the people I spoke to were like, you got to work with us for free. You learn a lot, but we can't afford to pay you. And I was, well, how am I supposed to pay my bills? And they just straight up told me, they were, you're an immigrant. So your options are either work for free or end up as a janitor. And I was a bit, I was like, and that was oh, the end I'm a bit more fair. 
Yeah, that was in Melbourne. And ironically, it was actually other Indian immigrants. And that's so disappointing because you think there would be this support and people would, having gone through those experiences, I don't know, make it easier. But I think often a lot of people, because they go through difficulties, they have this thing, oh, it was difficult for me. So why should it be so it easier be for you? Be, yeah. And I hate that mentality. I'm all about lifting people yeah. up around you. And I mean, the other thing is you've already gone through so much adversity, like tell them to piss off. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I was a bit at the point I had applied to 200 jobs and nothing was coming through. So I started applying for internships as well. I was, I'll literally take anything. I'm yeah. not afraid to start from scratch, but I just want to have this opportunity to do something and to show that I can do something. And I saw Neutromics because they were advertising on my university's website and mm. it was a paid internship. And I was like, oh my God, because yeah, my partner at the time, he was just f- finishing his law degree as well. So we were both pretty much unemployed students mm. and he was doing tutoring, which was his, which was a part-time job, but obviously that's not enough to live off. And I was, my parents were supporting me so, and I really wanted to be able to break off that. So I started as an intern and the job description was pretty much coming over four weeks part-time and help us put together some media lists and uh, connect, reach out to some journalists and that's it. But a week in, and I think my experience as a type 1 diabetic was really helpful here because mm-hmm. I could draw on the impact that the wearable had on me, my life, my management of my condition, but also the lives of my family and the ecosystem around me that was supporting me. And so I kind of took that experience into this job. And I saw, I put together the media list and stuff, but I was, I think you guys could do a lot more. So I put this presentation together for the founders, which was just sort of my two cents of what I thought could happen. And I'm a person who draws a lot of academic learning. So I, I enjoy academic learning a lot. I know there's this unpopular view that you can only learn marketing. You can only learn marketing on the job. And the unpopular view is if you have a degree, it's pretty much useless. But I don't feel that way. I yeah. think I think there's a lot you can learn. And I think academic theory actually helps you short circuit a lot of stuff. For example, mm-hmm. there's this branding. It's kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs and concept, but it's this brand hierarchy. And it basically shows you how you go from raising brand awareness to becoming something like a Harry Potter where people are making BuzzFeed quizzes and sorting themselves into houses. So it's, it's how do you actually go through that journey and how as a company or as a brand, I would pull on all of these things and I use that to sort of build a strategy for the company. And I was here's how you can build brand awareness. And it involved a mix of stuff, going to pitch competitions and doing the social media and building founder brands and doing thought leadership. And then how, in my mind, they as a company over the years can go all the way up to becoming this household name and even though it was probably way too early i was a weekend again into the company <laughs> and i obviously was coming in with all this academic experience of internships i'd done but not really i can't say i'd done a full-time job in marketing or comms at the time but mm. the founders peter and Hitesh, they're so open-minded even to this day even though the company has grown so much when i joined there was like six people now we have 50 but they're really open-minded and they were they listened to the presentation and at the end of it, they were, this is amazing. We want you to come in and do this. We want you to come in and do this for the company. We want, we feel you're giving the brand a voice and we want to see what you can do and we trust you with it. And my job kind of became a full-time role after that. And a couple of months in, I got promoted to PR and comms lead and I was able to grow my team as well. And I've been able to sort of grow and evolve the vision for the company into, from a comms perspective. But from day one, they've really just trusted me with this a lot. That's amazing. I mean, I, you know, it's interesting that because I don't think that I have a belief that you, that marketing is only ever learned on the job. I actually agree with you there. I think that you can learn. I think you can learn yeah. it anywhere, right? 
But it's interesting to hear you reflecting on your experience. I, I studied one marketing course in my degree and hated it, like just hated it. Never thought I was going to make my thing. And then really learned all my theory through an ad agency, but then in practice took a lot of that strategic theory. So it probably, you're right, you probably just circumvented a lot of the figuring out how to put those concepts together. But I think to your point, yeah. there's not there's no one way to figure it out. That's right. And I'm not saying I'm not saying oh like theory is hundred percent of what it is and you can't no. I think it's really a mix. I think when you're a beginner, the theory can help you frame a lot of what you're experiencing. Just put it into perspective. And at a startup especially, I know there's a lot of uncertainty. I as an individual cannot deal with that, which a lot of people told me would be a deal breaker for working in startups. <laughs> but what that looks for me is just when there's a lot of uncertainty, I go in with processes or principles or theory and I try to create structure for myself. And it's not set in stone, right? Like it's it's open to changing, but I like to set a plan or set something in place so that I can look at that and be like, okay, this is what I want to do tomorrow. This is what I want to do next week. And this is what I'm working towards in the next month and sort of build those processes. And I think if you're new to, if you're just starting off in your career, that's where the academic theory is super helpful. So that's really interesting. So you're not naturally kind of a lover of ambiguity, but you, when you face that kind of ambiguity, you create structures. Is that how you kind of overcome that? Yeah, I, I'd say so. I, I'm a risk taker for sure. I I kind of go with my gut feel. So even with the Goldman Sachs job, for example, there were two internships in the whole country. And India is a pretty big country. And there were a lot of people who were much better for this job. I love how you a pretty big country. It's the biggest country. (laughs) (laughs) But I think sometimes it's just to give that perspective, right? When you go for a job, it's, I feel here you're competing against hundreds of people. You're literally competing against hundreds and thousands of people, sometimes millions of people when it comes to Goldman Sachs with the same job. And so... You know, they, they're, these different departments come in, but I wanted to go with the department that I knew gives you the opportunity to go to New York because that was my goal. I want to go to New York for free. And I got called up for interviews for other departments and I wasn't even sure if the department I wanted would ever come up, but I was like, nope, I'm either going for that or nothing. And I do take similar risks in my career here, you know, with my first interview for Neutromics, I showed up with a presentation. I was, I've been through all your socials. This is what I think you can do before they even ask me a question. <laughs> and <laughs> that's a bold move. That's a risk because some people are going to love that and some people are going to hate that. But I, I do that a lot. But on the <laughs> other hand, I just don't like ambiguity. If, if someone answers a question to me and then I've actually never thought of this, I have I've never given this thought. I have no idea where we're going to go with this. I'm like, that's okay, but maybe we should come up with a plan. <laughs> maybe we need to figure that out. <laughs> I can tell you I have a lot of engineers. <laughs> I used to have a lot of Baraha all the time. They'd be like, I've got a great idea. And I was like, well, yeah, maybe, but let's slow down. We need a process. We need to figure out how we can actually make it happen. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Oh, that's I think funny. I think you got to you just got to be open to building those structures and processes for yourself. And I think a lot of people really told me, "Oh, if I interviewed you, I'm not sure if I would think you were right for a startup role." But to me, I'm like, ah, isn't that what a startup is? You go in and yeah. it's messy, and you try to untangle all these cords and pathway. And I think that's what being in a startup is. If you're someone who doesn't do really well with uncertainty, but you're good at building processes, then I still think there's a there's there's room in a startup for you because that's a, what a lot of your job is at the beginning. Absolutely. And I think to your point too, right, you should never hire an entire company of the same type of people because you'll never get anything done. 
You need you need the crazy scientists, but you also need the organized process people. And you need the inventors, but you also need the communicators. So it really is about building an ecosystem of people that can do the work. And the work is very... So then it's interesting because you say, oh, I didn't have any background in in STEM, but obviously you had a lot of domain expertise. Why the vision of the company was necessary, right? Not even just because you have type 1 diabetes, but because you've also existed in a culture where that wasn't something that you could be confident about or that wasn't something that you could self-manage and obviously you recognize that your privilege of having a doctor and a dad you're so lucky because men you could fly to Dubai you know I can only imagine so many people that just wouldn't have that so that's where your your mission for Neutromic becomes so interesting that idea that in the future anyone could have a wearable device and get the best in the world. I can just imagine how much more passionate about that you are than most people because of your lived experiences. Yeah, no, 100%. I think because living in India, you don't even get wearables there. My dad used to buy them from Dubai and send them to me for six months at a time. But I was like, it shouldn't be this hard to get care. And I was always in my head, I was like, yeah, I'm lucky to have my dad who can do that. But what about everybody else? Everybody deserves that. No one deserves to be told you're going to die at 50 and there's nothing we can do to help you. And I actually would call up CGM manufacturers, kind of be like, hey, are you going to come in the country? Are you ever going to launch in India? And often the answer here is, it's just not an important enough market. But to me, it's people's lives they're talking about, right? It's not just a number. And that's what I really liked about Neutromics is that they're really conscious of that. The uh, the purpose of our company, and Peter, our CEO, says that all the time, is to save millions of lives. It's not don't exist because we want to just make billions of dollars off of selling this product. We genuinely want to improve people's access to healthcare, improve patients' outcomes, and we want to make sure that people never have to, you know, relocate or move across the world or or be privileged enough to be able to fly to Dubai to get healthcare, but they could actually get yeah. that high quality care from their home. Yeah. And that, that's definitely really important to me. So when did you do the start, mate? Did you do the women's fellowship? Yes. yes. Yeah. I did the women's fellowship and also the media fellowship, but I did both after I got my job at Etromics. The way that I saw the women's fellowship was an opportunity for me to learn more about working at a startup because I had zero experience in that, but also connect with other people in the ecosystem and start to build those relationships. Yeah. I'm a huge, so I, I, like, I don't think that life is a zero-sum game. I think there's, there's a massive pie and it can always get bigger and we all need to share and support each other. And I thought that the fellowship was such an incredible opportunity to do that and to connect other women and support them. And then the media fellowship to connect with other creators and support them. Mm. I I absolutely love that you can do that through StaffMate. So, yeah, interesting to hear that you did it after too, which makes total sense to me and, and probably gave you just a great network because it is also difficult, right? When your first job in a startup, I know you worked at Goldman before, but you're in a new country, you're in a new job in a completely new industry, yeah. literally creating something that hasn't existed before. So there's a lot of, yeah. there's a lot of new. You know, like zero people when you work in PR, which works on contacts and knowing people. So it's really, yeah. really weird. <laughs> and then what do you think are some of your personality traits or characteristics that have allowed you pretty kind of incredible journey, right? Dealing with insane adversity, moving to another country, going through a pandemic, just to stop and reflect. You've done a lot. And I know you say you're an introvert, but you must have had to develop a thick skin. I think one thing I do is I never self-reject. So if I think I have a good idea, if I think I have something to say, it's really easy to be, well, but maybe nobody's going to care. Or maybe this is not new or self-reject in some way. But I think 
what if you have a great idea? It would have been super simple to be like, oh, these, the founders are not going to care about what in some interns that just graduated from uni has to say about their social media and comm strategy. But if I'd self-rejected, I think I would never have had that opportunity to show them what I was capable of or to, to be able mm-hmm. to get the full-time role. So I never self-reject and I never take notes personally. I think it's fine. Not everything is going to work out. Not everything is going to work out how you want it. Not everyone is going to say yes to you. And honestly, would you want every single person to say yes to you? If I had a hundred people say yes to every request I sent them, that would be overwhelming. I would, I would have to <laughs> then go through the difficult task of choosing and all of that. I think a no can be a gift. Just and you don't have to take it that door is shut forever. You could say, okay, that's a no for now and reach out again in a while, you know. And then I think the last thing I do is I, I and this is, I, I can't say I do this really well because it does affect me, but I try not to let other people define me and what I am capable of. And like I said, this is a work in process because sometimes people can say something and you know, it can just get stuck in your head and it can play in it round and round and round. And you could say, oh, this person is spot on and where they define me. But I also think if I let everyone define me, I would have probably quit my job, would have been married off to some random person I never knew and would probably just be living in India right now. I would never have the life I have right now. You know, I would have given up a long time ago. And I think that's really important, especially for young people, when you're in your early 20s, you're still trying to figure out who you are. Mm. And then when someone comes and labels you in a way, it's easy to take that on and say, oh, they must know something more than me, which is why they said that. But how is that possible? How can someone know you if you don't know yourself? And I think it's important to remind yourself of these things. Mm. So yeah, I think those are some of the things that I do. And then what kind of like rituals or during a work week, in order to say if someone makes an assumption about you based on something you know, fleeting, as you're kind of talking about, what are the things that you do from a personal self-care perspective to rectify how you actually perceive yourself? Hmm. One thing that I do is I have this mental model where I break down what mm-hmm. someone says and what is the fact, what is the thought, and what is the feeling here? So mm-hmm. say if someone said to me, for example, because you don't do well in uncertainty, you couldn't work at a start at a startup. Well, what is the fact here? The fact is all that this person said a statement. How I feel about it, it might make me feel sad. It might make me feel kind of dejected. But the feeling is not who I am. The feeling is still something that's separate to me. And then what's the thought that comes off of that? And I think that's where that the thought that you have is what defines you. You could think, yes, this person is right. And then that's all the actions I take from there is based off that thought. Or I could say, well, that's their opinion and that's it. And I I would love to say like this model works perfectly every time. It doesn't. That's why I'm also really lucky to have a family. My family were really close and my dad, especially, I can call him at any time. And I can talk to him to all of this. But one thing he always tells me, he's like, our emotions, our feelings, they're not who we are. Or our intrusive mm. thoughts are not who we are. They just they just exist. And we, sh- we shouldn't look at them with judgment, but we also shouldn't let them define us. We can feel it and let go of it and then take an action after that. So yeah, I think th- breaking on things and then if, if that doesn't work, talking to my family, that helps a lot. Yeah, nice. No, I think that's a really nice mental model. So what would you say is the way that you operate? That's, yeah, <laughs> that's a hard one. Maybe I'll go from Amr's perspective. I think, oh, sorry, Amr is the person who works in my team with me. So I'm just trying to imagine what he would have thought when he came. <laughs> <laughs> Put myself in his shoes a bit. I think people would say I'm quite 
energetic. I, when I come to work, I, I'm almost like, I give it a hundred percent and I'm fully present. I'm fully actively working at that time. And then the minute work's done, I just try to switch off and conserve my energy for the next day. So I'm very energetic when I'm working. I'm very like process led, but I'm also quite experimental. I love trying out new things. So for example, I really like TikTok personally and as a med tech company, sometimes I get any trauma because we're dealing with something really serious. It's like, how do you actually use some a fun platform like TikTok, but then use it for your company? And one way we've done that is we actually use it to highlight our company culture. And then we share TikToks on LinkedIn and they take off. And I love experimenting with different formats that way. We had a senior lead, senior leader in our company, a head of biosensors, Rob Bachelor, and he would comment a lot about scientific papers. And I was like, how can we make that more fun? How can we bring out his personality? So we came up with a concept for a series called Simpler Science, which is like a TikTok style format where he breaks down the paper in a minute, but talks about why it's exciting to him. And I feel like that's just injected this topic that could be so dry with all of his personality and passion and evolved it. So that I think that's something I do a lot. I'm quite quite organized. I'm quite like deadline led and stuff. So I, I definitely plan out my whole day. We have this massive geo board where we track things. We have all of these processes and stuff. I try to plan things out like months in advance. So I know exactly where I'm going or what I'm doing next. Not to say I'm not flexible about it, but I, I do try that. And then I think one thing everyone would say about me, the way that I operate is I'm really, really passionate. I mm. care. I really, really love comms. Ever since I was a child, I've loved watching ads on TV. I love seeing how messages are framed. I, I just enjoy it because I think like it's such an intersection of psychology and creativity and also practical theory that I, I, I just think that it's fun. And I try to I try to do that every day. I, I feel so grateful that I can do this as a career and actually get paid for it because I would have honestly just done it for free. So Don't I, ever tell I them like that, Roy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I did I did do a lot of unpaid work because of this, yeah. because of this very yeah. reason. But I do, yeah, I, I enjoy it. And I, yeah, I think that's something everybody would say about me. Yeah, amazing. And it sounds like you also embed a lot of creativity. I know you, you say you're, you're very organized, and, but it sounds to me like you're also always thinking about the way you can flex ideas and bring them out in a different way as well, which is, I think, the full mark of a great Mark and comms person. So that's Thank awesome you. to hear. Yeah. I just wrote down Neutromics, TikTok, go watch. <laughs> I try to I try to draw a lot of inspiration from like what other marketers are doing, even if it's not really related to my industry. If you see Duolingo, their TikTok is unhinged, right? Like it's unhinged, but <laughs> it does so well because it does so well because like it's so authentic. Like they're not they're not trying yeah. to be like all polished in their messaging. They're just trying to have fun. Yeah, no, interesting too, right? Because it's like during inspiration and then to your point using it authentically and also it's also platform-based right probably That's your right. oldest most conservative investors aren't on tiktok so you have a little bit more flexibility <laughs> that's true they're not and you obviously i would say you have to tailor stuff to your target audience and you also we, we only joined tiktok this year before that the only social media platform we've ever been on is linkedin because that's the place mm -hmm. for our investors but even there i do try to I do try to think beyond. I think sometimes people just don't even know what they like till you show it to them. Mm. I don't know that otherwise like, people would assume like investors are interested in that cultural topic because it's easy to be like, no, they only care about your runway and burn rate and that's it. But they do. <laughs> no, they do because they want you to build a sustainable business as well, right? And I guess the other thing that's interesting is you were going to grow different audiences as you go, right? There's mm -hmm. going to be a time exactly. you want 
patience to know that you exist. And so I think it's really important to have that diversity of content as well and diversity of audiences. Yeah, you have to always, I think when you're doing PR, you have to always think about who's the next person you're going to want to talk to or the next person you're going to want to build a community with. What do they want to know about you? So for example, being on TikTok, we're there because as a company, as we grow, a lot of our employees are going to be younger. And where are these younger Gen Z employees on their own TikTok? So they want to see what it's like to work here. And that's why it made sense for us to go there strategically. But a year ago, it would have made no sense. Yeah. That's so yeah, right. it's be interesting. I can't, I can't wait to watch it. So I'm getting a little bit conscious of time. So I'm going to ask you a couple more questions and we're going to start to wrap up. But okay. firstly, one piece of advice you'd give to yourself if you could go back to pre-Goldman Sachs, Roy. So right at the beginning of when your career was first start. I think my advice would be, I'd say to myself, your opinion is worth being heard, especially when I was younger. I used to think because other people were older or more experienced that all I could ever do was listen and spoken up more. I didn't have a strong confidence, a strong belief in my opinions. So is there another operator? Maybe it's someone that you work with. Maybe it's someone you met in the fellowship. But is there another operator in the Australian ecosystem that you think is doing an amazing job there's there's honestly like a lot <laughs> Bronte who you've spoken to I think she's amazing Emily Casey from what the hell I think the work that she does is incredible on what the hell I, I seriously think so and then I think this gonna sound surprised because she's the person I chose to talk to you but Rosie she's a head of IP she is one of the best leaders I have ever seen. She has taught me so much about what it means to be a good leader, the way that she mentors women in and outside of our company. She was my manager for a while and she gave me so much confidence to to ask questions, to value myself better. I yeah, I I think there's so many inspirational women in the industry and I think I'm really lucky to have met a lot of them. I love that answer. One okay. quick one is what are some resources that you just swear by what are some resources it could be a podcast it could be a book but what's something that really has helped guide you in your career there's this book called influence the power the power of psychology that's basically all about nudging and then there's also this book called the nudge unit which is about the use of nudge theory in messaging by used by the british government both of these were really useful to me because they helped me kind of understand how to better frame messages you know just like small things where you put the word because or where you put the word but and how that can totally change how somebody reads or interprets something. So what's your vision for the future? I think the future of content is video. I think it's and it's going to be really like raw, unedited, authentic video that just shows who you are as a person or a brand. I think the future of work is going to be more of realizing that work is even though we spend eight hours at work it's it's a small part of your life and you know who you are outside of work 90 percent of the time is what defines you and who you are i i hope it'll be an end to hustle culture i'm really not a big fan of that i think i think it's really important to pick a few things and do them really well and not to put so much pressure on defining yourself by your productivity and every single thing that you can do really well i'm very i am I am really, really excited to see Gen Z and Gen Alpha come out to the media and comm space to come into the workspace and change it forever. I can't wait to be an old person who's maybe like a bit out of touch, but who's, oh my God, these ideas are so radical because I feel that's going to change the world for the better. And I'm so excited about that future. I love that. That's a really beautiful way to wrap this up. 
Thank you so much. This was a really amazing episode. I feel like we could have spoken particularly around your history for like seven hours. But yeah, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. So yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really loved like chatting with you. And that's it for today. Today's episode was recorded and edited by me, your host, Philemon Newton, with original music composition by Stephen Shouten and photography by Philip Lemazuria. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.